me just read to you the last two verses of James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Uh, these verses flow just naturally out of what we studied together last week, verses 13 through 18, particularly if you remember verse 16, where James is giving an admonishment to the community, and he ends by saying, therefore, in light of these things we talked about, about the double-minded lifestyles can actually have physical consequences, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So it's natural that flowing out of that should be a concern for those in the community who have wandered away, and, and, and it fits with James's overall f argument that he's making in this epistle. You remember that James constantly has been encouraging and trying to prevent or turning people from living in sin or persistent error, and all through the book he's talking about that, the, 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 the sinful or the persistent error of thinking you can have faith without corresponding works in your life, the error of, of believing that you can treat people differently just because of their socioeconomic or ethnic backgrounds. Uh, the persistent error of an inconsistency in our lives, professing one thing through our mouths, but living something differently. Those were all errors. They were all showing a dividedness. The word double-minded came up often in James's study, and he keeps hammering that ho point home that we cannot be double-minded. And so it's fitting that he would conclude thinking about those who are double-minded and have wandered away. The prophet Daniel says that those who bring people back to the truth will shine like as bright as the stars. The New Testament tells us that those who pursue people are in the legacy of John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says this, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, that's nice. John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Those who go after others and turn people back from their error and back to the Lord are actually the living embodiment of God's message to humanity itself. The prophet Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 18, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? In chapter 33, he goes on, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So it is very fitting a call back to faithfulness just fits in an entire epistle that is a call to faithfulness. As we conclude our study of this amazing epistle, it's clear that James is a pastor that has basically one message that he's preached 10,000 different ways. Be single-mindedly, wholeheartedly committed to the Lord your God. And in the five chapters of this book that makes up the book of James, he's given us examples, he's given us evidences, he's given us exhortations of what that actually looks like in the lives of people who call themselves Christians. 
A single-minded devotion to God shows itself in seeing all of life's situations, the trials and the temptations through the the perspective of God, and a single-minded devotion to God is shown by a hearing of the Word and living in response to that. A single-minded devotion to God is shown, oh, that was chapter one, but in chapter two he said, is that you treat everyone the same because we're all on the same playing field. We're all sinners in need of grace. And a single-minded devotion to God shows itself in actually applying in your life the truths that you hear. In chapter three, he talked about single-minded devotion showed itself in seeking and pursuing godly wisdom and not being a friend of the world. Single-minded devotion to God, chapter 4, he showed us that it responds with this profound humility and most practically seen in the way practical matters like the way we spend our money and the way we use our time, recognizing that all of our lives that's often signified by our money and time are not our own but there there are gods to use. And then finally in chapter five, he was saying a single-minded devotion to God is shown in how we respond, not just to wealth and abundance, but most likely more often to persecution and lack and need. And, and, and in, the, in, in the middle of the book of James, the hinge point in this, in this five chapters of showing us what it means, these objective tests of what it means to be single-mindedly devoted to God, he offers in chapter four, verses seven through 10, uh, kind of a way back if you fail any one of these tests. It was a call to repentance. It was the hinge point of the book of James because he realized what's true of them is true of us, that we're not always gonna live the way we ought to. And so he said, this is how you come back. So in James chapter four, the hinge point, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Man, just submitting ourselves, that's such an evocative word because that's what we need to do. We are a culture that does not want to submit. That's the new S word, right, is submission. But he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, that the hand and the heart represented what we believe and think and how we live and behave. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Take your sin seriously. It has repercussions. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It is not a light matter. It is not a light matter to be in sin and humble yourselves before the Lord. And what? He will exalt you. It is a call to the single-minded life, not to be confused with a call to the simple-minded life or the narrow-minded life, not at all. It's a totally big difference. James wants believers then and now to think about, to integrate, to assimilate the 10,000 inferences and implications of gospel livings into our lives, regardless of our context. So in a room this size, on the one hand, there ought to be a very strange similarity between the, all, the way all of us live because the gospel's the engine that's driving us. But on the other hand, there ought to be a very unique diversity of the way that gospel's applied and revealed to the world around us. Because while we have the same gospel engine, That's going to look different in the context of if you're a housewife, a contractor, an insurance salesman, a school teacher, a student. So we're going to share a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. That is not a simple-minded life. That is hard. It is hard to live an integrated, coherent, consistent life. 
Single-mindedness is not simple-mindedness, nor is it narrow-mindedness. Yes, the gospel makes high demands. It requires the utmost devotion. There's a call to our lives, but it's not so narrow. It's also so broad that if it's every circumstance, context, and situation that you could possibly imagine. So this one thing, the gospel, but, but in order for all that to work, there's gotta be this laser focus on the gospel. Because the gospel, on the one hand, the gospel accepts us, but the gospel changes us. The gospel affirms us, the gospel uh, challenges us, the gospel exalts us, and the gospel humbles us. So it, it, it affirms us because every one of us have been made what, according to Genesis? In the image of God. The creator of the cosmos made you specially in his image. You're bestowed with value and honor. That, that just affirms you. But because of, this, because of sin, we're fallen and we're corrupt and depraved. So that, 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 that challenges us. It affirms what I am by creation, but it understands what I am because of my choices and my sin, and it challenges us. But the gospel exalts us because you are loved by God, and you did nothing to merit that. You did nothing to earn it. It's not like you're all that in a bag of chips. God said, I'm going to put my love upon you because I love you, and that exalts us. But because we did nothing to deserve it, we did nothing to merit it, that's really humbling, that this God would choose me, not apart from, any, apart from anything I've ever done, so I'm exalted, but I'm humbled. I'm affirmed, but I'm challenged, right? I'm accepted. God accepted me because there is no way I or any one of us could make myself good enough for the standard is perfection, there's no way I could do it. So he accepts me as I am, but the gospel changes me constantly because the standard is perfection. So the gospel does all these things. So now, as James comes to the end of this amazing letter, he has one final word to these Christians, and that is that there are those in their community that are in danger. They are wandering, and they need pursuit and encouragement into this radical uh, commitment to Christ. And the stakes couldn't be higher, but the reward could not be better. And there's only two verses. Let me read it to you again now that you kind of have this, kind of you're up to speed with what I think the point of this passage is. My brothers, James writes in James 5, 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. In our passage this morning, James is talking about two kinds of people and two kinds of situations, and we're going to look at them one at a time. First, the wandering and the wanderer. Um, I actually should have put the wanderer and the wandering. James is concerned that there are those amongst the congregation that are wandering away. The word that is translated uh, wander in the English is the same word we get, uh, we use for the word planet. It comes from the Greek word planao. Uh, early astronomers would look out into the night sky, and amongst the, the beauty up there, they would see the fixed points of the stars, but there would be these other celestial beings that just kind of wandered from one side of the heaven to the other, at least apparently wandered, and, and so they named them, th those things are wander, they're planao, they wander, they are the planets. 
So that's where we get our word planet from. It just wanders. We know planets don't wander, but it did, it seemed that way to them. In the New Testament, the same word that we translate planet, planao, is also translated, interestingly enough, to be deceived, to be led astray. And if you look at the New Testament and all the uses of this word, the, the differences are that when you are deceived, your beliefs and thoughts are being manipulated away from the truth to be led astray. Not only are your beliefs and thoughts being manipulated away from the truth, but your actions and behaviors are as well. And so you see that often in the New Testament, this family of usage of wandering, being deceived, and being led astray are all uh, kind of clustered together. But James says that that's what's happening in your midst. So the question we have to ask is, what is causing the wandering? What causes the wandering? Well, James gives us a hint. Remember in chapter 1, verse 6 and 14, James says, when those, he's talked about those who doubt, are like the raging sea driven and tossed by winds. And then in verse 14, he says, how each person is lured and enticed by his own desires. So the internal doubts and desires prevent these people from latching on to God's truth, and because they don't have a grip on it, they wander away, are taken away. Now, I want to be clear. The doubt that James is referring to here does not refer to the honest, kind of genuine questions toward belief. Christianity, more importantly, God himself welcomes those things, God always loves to reason with us. The prophet Isaiah says, come, let us reason together. The New Testament constantly says, don't you know, do you not understand? Study and know these things. So the Bible is not against doubts, the genuine doubts that wants to understand towards belief. The doubt being referred to here is a doubt we often encounter, and that is the doubt that is determined not to believe. Right, and, and if you've ever kind of worked with someone, you've, you've experienced this. There's a very different distinction between someone who genuinely is confused and needs understanding and someone who does not want to believe what you have to say to them. And usually this kind of doubt has a strong moral component attached to it, which is why James links internal desires with the doubt, right? I have often... Uh, excuse me, I should say, I have rarely met somebody who has legitimate intellectual problems with the Christian faith. They say that, that's the presenting issue, but when you have a good conversation, it usually comes down to the fact they don't want the claims of Christianity to be true because they don't want a God that has demands over them. They want to live their life their way without accountability, with impunity. And when you have to acknowledge God, that changes the playing field entirely. And so James in chapter 1 says the thing that causes the wandering are these doubts that really don't want to believe and these internal desires that lead them astray. There's always a moral component to our disbelief. It's not ever completely an objective, rational thing. My friends, there is a strong correlation between what people want and then what they will believe in light of what they want. Let me say that again. There is a strong correlation between what people want and what they will believe in light of what they want. Now, I could give you a lot of personal anecdotes, but the best thing to do is let's go to God's Word. Um, 
if you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy. If not, it'll, it'll be on the screens behind me. So, um, well, let's just do that. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I love this, this word picture, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now here's, friends, this is why we believe God's word is so inspired. It's not just inspiring what it teaches, we're talking the grammar makes a difference. So I don't wanna bore you with a grammar rule, but check it out what I've underlined. Um, and we'll turn away. Okay, little grammar lesson. If, uh, if, if the verb is passive, right, that means the action is happening to the subject. What's the subject in the sentence? The people. They will turn away. Excuse me, I got that back backwards. That's, that's active voice, right? And will turn away. That's active voice. They will turn away from what? Listening to the truth, okay? What is the voice of the next underlying statement? Passive. They will turn away, I don't want to listen to the truth, and what happens is they wander off into myths. Okay, you guys see that pattern here. They actively do not want to do something, and then the next phrase is passive, which means the action of the verb happens to them, and they wander off into myths. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21, because Paul gets at the same thing. For although they knew God, here it is, active voice, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God, active voice. Now look, it switches to passive. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let's keep that up there for a little bit. They actively did, well, we know God, but I don't want to honor him, and I'm not going to thank him, and as a result, they became futile in the way they think, and their hearts were darkened inside of them. And this is a scary reality. The scary reality that just these two passages of Scripture are showing to us is that when you reject the gospel or the knowledge of God, the danger is not that you will wander into no belief. The danger is you'll wander into any belief. That's the frightening reality. Friends, nature hates a vacuum, doesn't it? So does the human mind when it comes to things that matter. We cannot go through without answering the biggest questions of life. We're going to either accept the truth of the gospel and the knowledge of God, or we're going to reject them and wander into myths or whatever else there might be. I remember clearly the first time that this kind of reality was crystallized for me. I was just a believer for a few years. And there was, have, there was a, a new age fair. We don't have those too often. I don't know of them, but there was this new age fair in town, right? So tarot cards, palm readers, rune stones, and all kinds of weird things at, this, at the mall. So imagine Irvine Spectrum, right where the, the Ferris wheel is, and just surrounded by a ring of new age practitioners. And so I saw the commercial advertisement. I said to my friends, there's going to be dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of people all looking for spiritual answers to life. Well, let's go show up and bring the gospel. We've got to have the gospel there. So, you know, we were in the parking lot, young Christians, you know, into the heavy metal scene. And so we were headbanging, listening to some good Christian metal uh, bootleg copies to get excited about this. And we went out there and just started sharing the gospel with the practitioners and the people. I remember this one conversation I had with this guy. And he was saying, you Christians are crazy, you're narrow-minded, blah, 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 blah. So I said, all right, all right, you tell me. You give me your gospel. You tell me what it's about. And you can't make this stuff up. Bottom line... The guy uh, had a variation of tarot cards and pantheism. 
uh, um, and, and believed that the certain animals had certain properties that were beneficial to humanity. And so when he was sick, he would flip over the cards and he had like a frog, and so he would go into the Queen Liliokalani uh, stream and call upon the frogs to give them their healing elixirs. Now, I'm a new, kind of new Christian. I didn't know what scripture verse to go to after that, you know? <laughs> so, I, you know, it was very unelegant. I, I just... You think I'm crazy, is what I said to him, right? <laughs> and now, now, here's the funny thing. The thing is, New Age beliefs, the kind of which this man held, are not in the mainstream, so, so they're easy to dismiss, right? Yeah, we all know probably frogs are not going to give you their healing elixirs, so we can write that off. But, but what about truths and realities that reject the knowledge of God and the gospel, but they seem way more palatable because they're surrounded in our culture by an air of significance or dignity or scholasticism. What about, what about ideas that have rejected the truth of the gospel, but they seem more palatable just simply by the virtue of the cultural weight that everyone buys into it, and no one will say that the emperor has no clothes. So a great example is the theory, let me emphasize that again, the theory, let me emphasize that again, the theory of neo-Darwinism, or the origin of the cosmos. Dr. Hawking, Stephen Hawking, a theoretical physicist, wrote in his book, of the grand design, listen to what he says. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Therefore, it is not necessary to invoke God to set the universe going. Let's leave that quote up there for a little bit. Well, this, this is Dr. Stephen Hawking. And I just want to be clear. Dr. Stephen Hawking is probably one of the most brilliant men that we've ever known besides since Isaac Newton. Okay? I, I, tremendous respect. I have read portions and chapters from his book, and it's mind-blowing. So I do not want to take away that I'm making fun in any way of Dr. Hawking. I mean, goodness sakes, it's Stephen Hawking. But can anyone see a problem here? But, but, but here, here's like the point I want to make, though. Because of Stephen Hawking, we think, okay, this is gospel. This is it. This is what it is. And if Stephen Hawking says there's no God, then that clearly must be the case, and it's a book after all, so it must be the truth. Does anybody see the problem that is so obvious in his statement? Right? Does anybody see it? Look, if there's nothing, like Dr. Hawking says, there's nothing, there, we, we would agree that at one time there was no thing if there's nothing, then nothing means nothing, and that includes the law of gravity, which is something. You see what he's doing here. On the one hand, Dr. Hawking agrees that there is nothing around, but then on the other hand, he smuggles in a rather huge something that explains everything. Do you see that? The law of gravity is a something. If there's nothing, there's nothing. And yet, because it's Dr. Hawking, it seems like this must be the truth. My friends, whether it's a theoretical physicist, a New Age practitioner, or some kid who works at the Taco Bell down the street, when we reject the gospel and the knowledge of God, the, the alternative is not no belief. The alternative is almost any belief will do. It depends on what you want. And James is aware that that tendency exists in this community. So he calls in his final, final moments a call to action. But notice who he's calling to action. Who's he calling? It's right there in verse 19, the first two words. Brothers. He's calling all the believers of the church. 
This is the 15th time James has urged the brothers to do something. And we know from last week, James was aware that there were elders in the church. He knew there was a structured leadership there. But in his letter, 15 times, he calls the brothers to action and only once calls upon the elders, the implication being, this is a command for all of us, not just the the spiritual paratroopers or the pastors or elders or the Bible study leaders. This is for the person in the pew. We're all called to be pursuers and pursue the pursuit, the wanderers. So let's look at that next. We look at the wandering and the wanderers. Now let's look at the pursuers and the pursuing. We're all called to do this, but keep in mind as we do it, what Paul so beautifully says uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brothers, if any one of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keeping watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted as well. So we need to do this. Uh, We got to do it lovingly. We need to do it prayerfully. We need to do it graciously, but we need to do it. Ephesians, excuse me, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses uh, 13, 3 verses 12, he says this, take care, brothers, again, the church, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the antidote? But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in Galatians and in Hebrews, they're saying, you, everyone has to be out about this. Restore those who have fallen. Be careful because you're going to have people with an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. The antidote exhort one another every day. I wonder, do you know somebody this morning who's wandering? Do you know somebody this morning that needs pursuing? It might be somebody in your community group. It might be somebody in your, your Bible study, maybe at the office or at school. It might be somebody that sits next to you ordinarily every Sunday morning. Maybe they're still there physically, but maybe not. People often say that, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm always a freak about attendance, and it's not because I'm looking for numbers, it's because of this. Generally, if there is trouble in someone's life, um, the first place you're going to find it is in attendance. Don't underestimate this very simple yet profound reality If there's trouble in someone's life, or if someone is beginning to wander, the very first place publicly you will become aware of it is whether or not they keep showing up. Now, on the one hand, it might just be a simple problem, like physically. They just can't get a ride anymore. They don't have a ride to church or Bible study or to the youth group. That's that's an easy fix, isn't it? You find that out, you go, oh, well, let's just get some buddies together and we'll pick you up. Problem solved. But if the problem is more like the subtlety of sin's deceitfulness, or they are engaging in a lifestyle that they know is themselves wrong, or they're just simply beginning to wander, the first place you're going to see is they just stop showing up. I mean, if they begin to doubt the truth of God's Word, there's going to be a corresponding diminishing desire to be with God's people. That just is, that's not rocket science. That just makes sense. If they're starting to disbelieve this or live in a way that's contrary to this, do they want to be surrounded by people that are going to remind them of this? No. 
And so the first place we see it is in their attendance. So, so spotty attendance may seem benign on the surface, but if you just think about it like we did, it is an important indicator of where people are at spiritually. They could just be spiritually adrift, right? You just kind of nudge them back in. Or they could be an open rebellion. And they may not even know it. But the first place we're going to see that wandering tendency is in their attendance. So stop a minute. Stop a minute. Who used to be with you or with us sitting here and they're not here anymore? Do you know why? Do you know what happened to them? Did, did, they, did they forget how to get here? Our service times throw them off? Are they overtaken by sin? Are they overwhelmed by life? Do you know? Your pursuit of them may be the very means by which God renews them, restores them, and in the words of James, saves their soul from death and covers a multitude of sin. But are we even aware? Friends, I know that the the application of this, of this truth is hard in our culture because we live in a culture where you don't get in each other's business, right? We keep it all news, weather, sports. Don't get beyond that. And this challenges to ask people, where have you been Sunday mornings or what's going on, challenges the cultural narrative of our uh, idol of autonomy, right? That, that, that I am the master and commander of my destiny, nobody else, just me. And it's hard, but friends, what's more loving? To allow somebody to, to engage in their sin and suffer the consequences thereof, or to call someone to repentance and trust Christ? I, I got a clip I want to show you in just a second here. Uh, it's by a guy named Penn Gillette. So you might recognize the name Penn. He's from the magical act Penn and Teller, a big act over on the Sunset, or not Sunset Strip, uh, over on, uh, um, in, on the Vegas Strip, right? Big uh, magical act. And he, apparently after one of his shows, a Christian came up to him and tried to share the gospel with him, gave him a Bible and everything. Now Penn is an atheist. He's an av- avid atheist. He doesn't believe in the gospel. He doesn't believe in Christianity at all. But I love the comments he makes here after having this interaction with this Christian who he clearly disagrees with. Now, he's a bit disheveled because he's doing this on his iPhone, and I got it off YouTube. This is him talking in his dressing room right after the fact. I'm only going to give you a, like a minute, 10-second clip of it, but let's play that, Debbie. And talked to me, and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. Wow. He's not a Christian. He, he thinks Christianity is phony, he thinks it's false. But he could connect the dots. Did you hear him? How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them this, is what he said. 
connects the dots, and he's not even a believer in the gospel. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them or introduce them to Christ or not pursue them when they're wandering away into sin and the consequence thereof? How much do you have to hate them to not risk the socially awkward question of getting in their grill and saying, where you been? Just what's going on? Guys, God has given that message to us, all of us. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 20. This is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of this reconciliation. Therefore, we are all ambassadors of Christ, Paul said. Proverbs 11.30 says that whoever captures souls is wise. In Thessalonians, Paul said, we're a great example of this kind of wandering and futility and darkness, but coming to God. In 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In short, James concludes his very small epistle in a very practical application of what the whole message is about. If there are those among you who are double-minded, maybe they're deceiving themselves, maybe they're being deceived by someone or something else, go after them. Go after them. Call them back to a single-minded devotion to Christ, and in so doing, you will save them and cover a multitude of sins. Friends, as James ends his epistle, either way, we recognize that the Christian life is not merely to make sure that, that you're on track and you're okay and everything's good, but it's to do your best to ensure that others are doing well our, our motto that has been kind of adopted, we are for the glory of God and the good of others. It's not just about me and Jesus hanging out at Starbucks. It's about you and Jesus and His people. And that means getting involved in socially awkward conversations sometimes. The elders of our church have this brilliant saying, how's it go? <laughs> Oh, uh, love covers a multitude of awkward conversations. <laughs> Don't look for the perfect segue or opportunity. Sometimes it doesn't present itself. It can just be as awkward and honest as, I love you, and I'm willing to risk kind of the relational capital I have to just find out what's happening. I love you enough to say, I think the lifestyle you're living and choosing is detrimental to you, even though you think it's what you want. That can be socially awkward, but it can be eternally beautiful. And James says, go after him. Friends, this is just yet another reason why membership in a local church is so important. You're not just attending. You're not just benefiting. You're signing up and saying, I'm signing up to care for other people. When James says, brothers, you're saying, that's me, that brother's referring to a defined group of people in the community. It's my job, it's your job to do the pursuing. It's not some ambiguous group of like-minded people who like what's going on and hang out. It's a family, and you know the family. It's not a revolving door. Pray for those who wander. Pray about being the one who pursues. Don't, don't wait for Jimmy to do it. Don't wait for Tom to do it. Get after it.
because Jimmy and Tom may be busy pursuing someone else. And one day, maybe someone will have to pursue Jimmy or Tom. It's the responsibility we all share. Um, we are done with our study of James, all 17 sermons on it. And from the beginning, James has been saying, here's my point, here's my goal. I want you to be complete in Christ. I want you to be whole. And, and he's done a beautiful job of, of warning us of the dangers, the hindrances, and the false steps we might make. He's done a beautiful job of telling us about the, the put-off, put-on dynamic of change. And he's done a beautiful job of reminding us that Christianity is not an individual thing. There's a corporate element to it, and it requires all of us to be involved. Now, next week, as I said, is our, our, our uh, reflection service. And I just won't, I won't be here because... Um, Boy, I found a great Anglican church to fellowship with in, in England while we're there. Looking forward to that. But so I just want to share with you the five things that have come up in my heart as we've been marinating in James since April. Um, some of them are directly from James. They'll be very familiar, but a lot of them are just themes that come up. So here they are. As a way to think about James's message to us, number one, it's clear to me that we exist for God and His glory, not He for mine, Right? Psalm 115 says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory, power, and majesty, and dominion forever and ever. We've established very clearly that there is a God, and it's not anyone in this room. We exist for His glory, not He for ours, number two. And, and these, by the way, they're in a numerical order, but they're really all just spokes off the same hub. Number two, live your light Live your life in light of God's calling and purposes for you. Live your life in light of God's calling and purposes, not based on the cultural values and ideas of success, and certainly not based off of our, our culture of, of uh, personal desire and, and self-interest and leisure, ease, and entertainment. Live in light of what God's called us to do. Number three, and these are all building on each other. Realize you are living on borrowed time. I tried to do a study of how many people in our congregation died since we started this book. I know at least one. Remember Pat? She just was with us and then all of a sudden gone. We are living on borrowed time and that soon will be gone. Friends, we have one shot. One shot at making a difference in eternity. Are you taking yours? Are you taking You got one round in the chamber. You got one shot to make a difference for eternity. Are you, making, are you taking your shot or are you squandering it? Are you distracted by it? Do you even realize what's going on? We live on borrowed time. Number four. Number four, live for what matters, right? Live for what matters. And, and the diagnostic question was this. Ask yourself, if in a hundred years what you're so invested now will matter, if it doesn't, should it be so important to you now? Right? And you can't take that one apart from all the other ones because that's really important. That actually infuses everything we're doing with importance. But if a hundred years from now, it doesn't matter how good your fantasy football team did, does it matter now so much? Should it? Right? All these things have to be in the context of living for God's glory according to the plans and purposes He has for your life because you're on borrowed time. And then fifth and finally, be broken over sin. Let me qualify that. Be more broken over your own sin than you are upset about other people's sin. Really important. 
be more broken over your own sin than you are upset at others people, other people's sins. I wish I would be here next week for the reflection service, but that's what I learned from our brother James. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a beautiful gift to us. We are orphans without your word guiding us. Thank you for the courage of brothers and sisters who have for generations and generations preserved your words that we might gather and hear it proclaimed. Holy Spirit, we want to be a church that is of a single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we want to be so heavenly-minded that we actually can become some earthly good. That is not going to happen left to our own resources. Apart from your animation in our lives, we would not draw near to you. We would not worship you. We would not love you. And so we ask humbly that you change what we live for, change our hearts, give us a passion for your glory and the good of others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.